0: A podcast 1 production
1: Welcome to the Alternative Truth, a series where we debunk the myths and spin on health and well-being. Hi. My name's Mailing Dory, a lifestyle curious medical doctor, public health expert, and strategist. One thing I've learned is that what we think is right when it comes to health often isn't. So I've set out to talk with some of the world's most esteemed medical experts and frontline wellbeing innovators to find out the alternative truth. In this episode, we explored the subject of energy and non-contact healing modalities. Our first guest, Charlie Goldsmith, is an acclaimed healer boasting millions of followers, and a starring role in TLC TV series, The Healer. We were then joined by Dr. Justin Coleman, General Practitioner, Medical Writer, and Advocate for Evidence-Based Medicine. Charlie Goldsmith's journey towards the healing arts was an unexpected one. Growing up in an infamous hospitality family in Melbourne, Charlie came to learn of his abilities somewhat by accident. And for the best part of two decades, he kept his skills out of the public eye. It wasn't really until after his first hospital study, completed in 2013 by doctors at the NYU Lutheran Hospital, that what he did really became public. This year, professors at NYU Langhorne Hospital in New York commenced a controlled trial with Charlie. It's due for publication later in 2019. Charlie Goldsmith, welcome. You're born and bred in Melbourne to quite a remarkable family, pioneers of some of Melbourne's most well-known nightclubs. You founded communications company Cassette. And somewhere along the journey, you discovered, understand by chance or fate, that you have this unique capacity to heal people. But for most of the past two decades, this has been largely under the radar and out of the public eye, and I guess you could say uncommercialised, you heal people for free around the world. And anecdotally, there have been some absolutely remarkable recoveries. I know recently you've reversed dementia, you've cured fibromyalgia, correct me if I'm wrong here, autoimmune conditions and chronic unexplained pain. Now, a large part of your motivation stems from a desire to see this energy healing, something which for many people out there seems fanciful and completely off the wall. You'd like to see it more Accepted and legitimised and recognised as an important part of the things we do to become and stay well. Now, I understand there was a turning point in around 2013 when the New York University Lutheran Hospital began examining your skill formally, and since then you've been studied by I think it's Professor Paul Komissarov at Monash.
2: Komissarov.
1: Komissarov. Yeah. Um, yeah, you've been approached by um, the New York University Langon Hospital. Is that right?
2: Yeah, I'm about to start a study with them in the next couple of months.
1: And the end game is to see what you do undergo, I guess, the gold standard of all science, which is a double-blinded, randomised control trial.
2: That's that's the idea,
1: yeah. Yeah. So alongside all of this, you've also had the time to be captured on camera, most recently on TLC's The Healer, which I understand has done nothing but to fuel your already very engaged and enthusiastic followers. So... With these two worlds, I guess, at a clashing point, and you at the centre, I wanted to kick off by asking you: exactly how did you work out that you could heal people, and what happened?
2: So I, I worked it out accidentally. I was um, I was eighteen. I'd just left school, and I was at a health retreat doing work experience, which um, was something all of my brothers and many brothers and sisters had done at this retreat in. Queensland and I I think I was in my second week at this retreat and I sat down to get like to eat my breakfast one morning and as I went to get my uh, knife and fork my hands like forcefully pulled together it was like they were like super magnetic and they pulled together and they were sort of I wouldn't say they were stuck but I was sort sort of watching my hands be kind of clapped together and I'm thinking that was really weird like my hands were just forced and I pulled them apart and I could feel like a really strong magnetism between both of my hands and I'm sitting there thinking I'm sick, like I can feel something I can't see and, there's, you know, I'm losing my mind and so, at you know, a lot of stuff was going through my head at that point because I was distressed and someone sitting opposite me was like, are you okay? I'm like, no, I'm not okay. I, I can feel something in the air and it's freaking me out and I turned to the woman sitting next to me and I put my hand up and I was like, feel this. And I don't even know what made me think that someone might be able to feel it or, or anything, but I, anyway, that's what I did. And, and she put her hand up and she was like, oh, my God, what is that? So fortunately for me, she could feel it too, which not everyone can, but I don't know, maybe two in three people will feel this phenomena um, coming out of me. And so she was one of them. So I then kind of relaxed a bit like, okay, it's not just me. It's like someone else felt it. And then a whole bunch of people came up to feel it coming out of me, you know, from the table and then from, you know, around the room. And this one woman came up and I don't know how many had felt this thing before her, but She put her hand up and I, as soon as she put it up, I felt that her hand was different to everyone else's. I felt this lump that was really quite tangible to me about an inch off her palm. And I was like, oh, that's so weird. You've got like this lump and no one else had it. And so I was like, I don't know why, but I really need to get rid of it. So I'm like using my hand and physically, even though I wasn't touching her, I was, to me, I was, I could feel myself touching this lump and I'm like smoothing it out and I got about halfway through and I and I looked up and she was crying and I was like oh my god I'm hurting you I'm so sorry like I'll stop and she was no no keep going so I was like okay sure so I keep going and I get to the point where it's basically done and um, and I look up again she's still, Got tears streaming down her face, and, and she starts bending her finger. And she was like, I haven't been able to bend this finger for, you know, I, I always told the story three years. It's 20 years ago, so I never remembered it well. But I spoke to her recently, and she says, for 10 years, she hadn't been able to bend whichever finger it was. And so then I kind of went back into that kind of shocked state. Like, I, you know, I wasn't expecting an outcome, I didn't even know anything was wrong with her. And I recognize now that she knew what I was doing because she had the issue with her finger. So she was aware that I was obviously targeting this issue she with arthritis that she had, but I had no idea. It was just kind of instinctive, I guess. And then, yeah, so that was the first 20 minutes. And then from there, it turned out that I could do this thing really consistently, you know, so from eight, from right back then at 18 to now, you know, I've sort of been strongly affecting seven or eight in ten people that I work on, Or, you know, almost no matter what the problem is. Obviously, it doesn't do everything, but it's just, it's incredibly consistent.
1: Now, the sceptic in me wants to ask you, on behalf of everyone who's out there listening, what is the difference between the people that, you know, are affected and the two or three that aren't? Like, what can you say about the people? Are they, are they self-selecting?
2: No, because I would say, you know, most, especially in the early days, I didn't have a reputation for being able to do anything, you know. So there was no um, reputation for people to believe I was going to have an outcome. The I've never seen a correlation between, between someone who really wants me to be able to help them versus someone who is like, this is bullshit, and it helping the person that really wants it versus the one that doesn't. I see actually often it's the people who don't believe it, it will have a strong outcome. And obviously over time, especially the last couple of years where I've got more of a reputation that's different, but I'm not doing any better work than I was this whole time, you know. So, yeah. so I don't have an answer why it doesn't work for some people because mm. it's not because they don't want it. It's not because I don't want to help them. Like I don't, I don't know that answer.
1: Do you have a sense of, you know, after hundreds and hundreds of cases, because I know you are healing people on a very constant basis, of what this power is exactly or where it comes from?
2: I don't know. I think that there's lots of theories depending on um, which angle you look at it from, from, you know, science to religion to spiritual, you know, spirituality. I, I, and I don't, and, and medicine, I guess, and I don't, you know, I think there's probably a bit of everything. I don't know the answer. I definitely have had experiences which which might give me some sense, but they're not things that I know for sure. Like I, I like to focus on this is what it does and that's why it's important and not really get stuck on the why because I think the why we can all argue about, whereas the results you can't really argue them as much, you know, regardless of how you think I got the result, the results are there. Um, So I don't like to, even internally, I don't like to overly think about it because I don't really want to get stuck on theories when I'll probably be wrong. I might have a theory today and then in six months be like, oh, that was wrong. And so I find that to be for me a waste of my time and also it would just create like as soon as I say my belief then I'm arguing with someone about that instead of going hey look healing is important it helps people and that's what we need to focus on so yeah I don't I I've never even when I was really young I never got caught up on the why the how the why me's like nothing I just was like it doesn't matter I can do it and I'm gonna stick to that.
1: I mean this guy like Tell us, how long had he not had taste and smell?
2: It was years, like seven ye- yeah. years, I don't know. Yeah, it was a while. So I brought that back on the spot. Basically, I got him to bring a whole lot of things that he definitely couldn't taste and smell. Um, so he had a whole lot of different foods uh, there. And then, yeah, I worked on him and, and bit by bit, his it all came back, which was cool. And that was now, when was that? Two oh, months ago? Two and a half months and he's still good, so...
1: What was his response to that? Given that he is from a healthcare background,
2: uh, he was pretty good, actually. You know, I think that he wasn't expecting anything to happen. I can tell you that. You know, he he works in. I mean, he's sort of open-minded person, but not open-minded at my to the level you need to be for me. But he had a good response. I think he was really happy. You know, I, 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 to not have your sense of smell and taste for a long time. I can't imagine because I enjoy food but it's a big thing to lose. Um, so he was, you know, he was really happy.
1: Now, more recently you are in the US and were summoned to the Amen Brain Clinic. Have I said that right? I believe so. Um, to look after a patient or to take a look at a patient who had, by any account, diagnosed dementia. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd had a SPECT scan, which showed a reduction in blood flow in... What's described to me... So I actually called the doctor in the US, Dr Sood, and he described reduced blood flow in the parietal and frontal lobes, which is the front and the sides of the brain, um, for anyone who loves anatomy. And you went and saw this guy. What happened exactly?
2: So well, the order in which it happened was I got... Re- I get a lot of messages from people and I kind of read them at random and I read one message and it, it appealed to me, the the case appealed to me to try, So, which was this man with the, it was from the, the man's wife. Um, so I worked on him a couple of times, but after the first time, really, he, he went from pretty much not communicating at all with some angry outbursts But and, his, and, and traditionally zero anger person and not functional, not really been able to do anything on his own at that point. He'd had a, a very steep decline over tw- 12 months. So I worked on him and within a minute, uh, he was pretty much fully functional again, you know, talking, able to do things on his own, uh, things like that. So I worked on him probably, I think maybe three times. And then he went back to the clinic that had initially diagnosed him and got reassessed and had his brain re-scanned. Uh, and that's when they called me in because the, 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 the results in the scan were, you know, so significantly changed that they wanted to meet me and talk so
1: and so what's happened off the back of that event?
2: well I've got a great brain clinic that's really interested in doing work with me which is fantastic um, so you know I met the I ended up meeting the owner of that clinic while I was in America and so we're sort of talking at the moment about how we can maybe do some studies together and yeah how I can benefit them and they can benefit the work I'm trying to do
1: health, healing, wellbeing? Where does that all lie?
2: My hope is that you'll see people who are really gifted in my way as a norm in medicine. You know, I I personally think that two really important parts of the future of medicine are gut health and energetic medicine. So yeah, that's... I hope it becomes a norm. That's what I'd like to see. And that's what I'm, you know, I'm at least what I'm trying to do is start that conversation. And I think demonstrate in a way that can't be easily explained away, you know, because the way energy medicine is perceived at the moment is it gets subtle change. You know, it might get a 10% reduction, 20% reduction in pain or whatever. And whereas I get a hundred percent, you know, 80% of the time, 70% of the time. So I'm hoping that that becomes just a norm, that, you know, it's in hospitals, insurance companies have people like me full-time saving them money. Uh, Sports teams are using people like me, you know, that's what I would like to see. And I'm sure it will happen, to be honest. I think that, that it's inevitable that it will break through.
1: And what about the gut health? How does that, what's led you to believe that that is also, you know, the other part?
2: my own health has 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 been a factor in that i had a lot of antibiotics as a, as a, as a kid and i was because i was getting tonsillitis a lot so i ended up with gut health issues you know like a, uh, i guess i was unable to to digest quite a lot of foods and had a lot of reactions so i had to heal you know myself through diet and 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 other you know probiotic sort of things and and so I learned a lot about that, and I see a lot of people who are suffering from gut health issues and autoimmune conditions, which are coming from the gut, and there's, I think, a lot of pretty strong science around brain health being affected by the gut too. And and it all, in the end of the day, comes down to what we eat and how we look after ourselves and, you know, from, from early on, how we... Nurture our, our biome. So, I I think there are really good interventions um, to help people that are in really bad states with their gut biome, like FMT,
1: which I am a big fan of. And so, that's in, um, should we just tell people what that is? That's fecal matter transfer.
2: Yeah. So, it's taking the, the, the you love saying that, don't you? <laughs> that's taking the healthy gut biome out of a, of a healthy person and plant implanting it in someone who has an imbalance in their gut biome and it's incredibly powerful you know like it it, I've seen it affect people hugely and so and the cool thing about that so like energy medicine so whether you believe it works everyone agrees it doesn't hurt that's just a fact it does not hurt like unless the practitioner is unscrupulous in some way but that's like any it's like any practitioner can be a massage should not hurt but if a if a practitioner wants to do the wrong thing you know that's different but energy medicine on its own does no harm and it's the same with things like Fmt I mean unless they do it wrong it's a preventative medicine it's also medicine that can be used when someone's actually sick and it does no harm and I think that and the same with food as a medicine it does if you eat good food, it does no harm. And I think that all these things, you know, traditionally medicine is like, oh, you're broken. What are the symptoms? Let's hide the symptoms, you know? And and so I think a lot of these medicines that don't do harm and you see across a lot of alternate medicine, they don't, they may be more subtle in a lot of cases. I don't think in my case, it's very subtle, what I do, but acupuncture and all these things that people do, they're not harming. So what you gain sometimes in medicine that has such a dramatic effect, like an antibiotic can have a dramatic effect. Ultimately some of the, some of the speed you gain of getting better and maybe the, the, a a shorter period of being sick in a, in a good case where it works. What have you done at the other side to yourself that, you know, is it arthritis or is it um, fibromyalgia or is it dementia or what is it that, that, could come from the imbalance in biome. So I really think and I what I hope is if I could have every doctor listen to me at once, I'd say it's not you versus the other side. You are your job is to get people better and people really trust you. And you deserve that trust. You've studied and you care and and so don't hate and try and discredit things that helped one in ten people because that's still one person that needed help and it matters. And just because it was more subtle and it wasn't effective on other people, if everyone works as a team, then maybe that one in 10 can become three in 10 or seven in 10 or may, you know, when you work out who, why is that one in 10, the person that, that is affected by a, like, um, let's say homeopathy, I don't know what their numbers are, but let's say medicine just writes it off. But I know a lot of people that think homeopathy is great. So it's like, are we better off just because it helps three in 10 people are we better off to go, well, that's no good. It's only three and 10. Or do we go, how do we work out who those three are? And so it helps the 10 in 10 because so you can identify who it's going to help. You know, so I, I, I really hope that there's, you know, that it, there's not alternate medicine and conventional medicine at some point. It's like, no, we're all here to help people. Obviously you get rid of the stuff that's just straight bullshit, but that's what, what I hope. I hate the... I hate the divide when when the idea is to help people.
1: Thank you for taking the time to come and speak on the alternative truth and providing such a riveting safari through your experience and I have no doubt that your um your following is only going to grow.
2: Thank you. Thanks for
1: having me. <laughs> What struck me about Charlie's experience was how unassuming he was about a practice that seriously challenges mainstream medicine. Having moved around the healing and well-being circles, there are many to claim to heal through mysterious ways. Some, it would seem, are really just seeking celebrity. And whilst Charlie has in recent years developed quite a public profile, the wide and enthusiastic global following is difficult to explain without some therapeutic benefit. Even for the most practical amongst us, seeing him in action makes it difficult to hold on to notions that the body is just a machine or animated meat. After listening to Charlie, I found myself asking, how could we design a mechanism to measure exactly what he does? Might there be others with this kind of mystical ability? Is believing a precursor to seeing and experiencing? But first, let's hear from Dr. Justin Coleman. As a GP and a writer, Justin looks sceptically at health interventions where the evidence suggests they might not be worthwhile. This is part of his broader interest in public health and the concept of equity, that is, fair access for everyone. At the time of our interview, Justin was working as a practising GP among Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people on the Tiwi Islands north of Darwin. I thought I'd lead out by asking you a bit about what you're observing as a general practitioner in your, in your patients who might be engaging in some of these alternative energy modalities?
0: To some extent, I'm shielded a bit from that by the fact that I do work in Aboriginal health at the moment and a lot of those things don't quite travel all the way to the Tiwi Islands. Um, But certainly I deal a lot in that space um, with other doctors and we we talk about it and discuss it a lot. And there's no doubt it is a growing trend, Uh, people coming into their GPs, for example, and mentioning the fact that they're also getting in parallel um, other other modalities of therapy. So it's certainly increasing.
1: What's your view? Like, can Reiki, or is it, have it Reiki, am I saying it correctly, work? Uh, the short and sweet summary
0: is that I don't believe these modalities work uh, beyond the human interaction between the practitioner and the person coming to see them. And I think that would cover, that statement would cover all these therapies so when you say does it work it's certainly possible the person can walk out of the interaction uh feeling better than they did when they walked in as we hope happens in a lot of human interactions and can happen with friends and can happen with professionals um if you mean work in the sense that is there that um inexplicable energy source which is somehow used to heal a person then i would adamantly say no i don't think that works
1: So people have made claims that they've had things as serious as like tumours regress from energy medicine or distant healings. What's your view on things like that? My view on
0: that is is fairly black and white in the sense that I just do not believe that um, anyone purporting to somehow channel energy through their hands or through blinking their eyes or holding their hands in a certain way, I really um, do not believe that can alter um, you know processes at a cellular level, which is really what uh, you mean by tumor regression, so basically the cells which are cancer cells, for example, um, feeling somehow this person 's hands waving nearby and somehow stopping growing. Um, I think the important thing to remember there is of course that tumors do regress uh, with or without all these therapies, and so there 's a fairly simple way of testing that, and it has been tested. Uh, which is really you you follow a, a you know 100 people with a certain problem and, and divide them into lots of 50 and and do one thing for for the 150 and and don't don't do the therapy for the other 50 and see how the outcomes compare which is a very different thing from one person saying my tumor regressed because of course, a person not receiving uh, therapy could also um, quite rightly ch- claim that their tumour regressed because it does happen.
1: Given that, um, and I guess what you're pointing to there is like a a um, case control trial of some kind. Which, if in your view, we need to see something like that run for each of these scenarios for you to have any sense that the intervention itself is doing something; it's not more than random or placebo.
0: I think so because without it you could really claim anything you liked worked. You could you could literally claim, you know, tossing a coin worked or drinking a cup of tea or uh, anything and and there's, you know, nothing to stop people saying that something works. So without some sort of evidence, I, I just find it hard to see how a, a single anecdote of someone saying they got better um, is particularly useful. It would be um, useful if there is, you know, one particular treatment which which everyone agreed might work, and everyone would test. The difficulty in this is that there's, you know, potentially thousands of things you could claim worked. You could choose any herb or any root or any any energy method or a, a machine that you could literally, you know, come up with a thousand or ten thousand possible things that might work. And it's very hard to go around refuting every single claim scientifically of of every person who says that something works. So it's actually quite an effort to 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 do a a decent trial.
1: I'm going to flip this around because another side of the the discussion um, that sometimes crops up is this notion that we um, manifest our diseases that. We think toxic thoughts, and then we crop things. Things crop up in our body because we've been energetically out of balance. Do you think that point of view has any validity? Um,
0: I again inserting the word energetically out of balance is is a very you know it, it does play in I guess to the to the energy therapy. Um, there's certainly no doubt that the you know that it's the, taking the holistic view that our our state of health, our state of mental health, the way in which we look after ourselves, or we don't, and our relationships—all of those things can uh, play a very important role in, in you know, physical processes in how much we feel pain, for example, or how likely we are to recover from something, um, you know, a common cold. You could say, well, it's purely a virus attacking you, but on the other hand, we know that um, if you're very run down and and uh, don't look after yourself and you smoke, all those sorts of things, then that very same virus will likely cause a whole lot more damage than in someone who's uh, fit and healthy. So, yeah, of course, there's a multifactorial um, inputs into all things about how quickly you recover from illness. But I think that's a very different thing from uh, showing that that's some sort of evidence of a, of an energy imbalance.
1: I guess what I'm trying to work out is can our thoughts cause disease? our
0: thoughts are certainly very intrinsic to the way our body responds to disease uh if you mean can our thoughts cause disease as in for example cause a a skin cancer or, or a liver cancer then i would say no um in in that sense so and again i don't think you could cure a skin cancer or liver cancer by thinking better thoughts and i think that in some ways is almost self-evident in the sense that, you know, good people and bad people, worried people and relaxed people um, get cancer at the same rates. And and if there's a difference in rates, it almost always comes down to other things like, you know, smoking, drinking, lifestyle, sun exposure, that sort of thing.
1: Has, has that been measured? Because I find that a fascinating um, concept, having had family members with cancer. And, you know, sometimes it is hard to understand when good people do get cancer and then I guess sometimes they go into alternative health treatment treat modalities and they're told, well, you've just got to think better thoughts. You need to relax, you need to meditate, you need to get to get to the source of why you've manifested this.
0: Yeah, I mean, that it would annoy me, I must say, if a practitioner seriously said you got this because of bad thoughts and you need to think better thoughts if you are to get better and if you don't get better it's a sign that you're not thinking better thoughts. To me, it's There's no scientific plausibility towards that. And I think that can actually harm someone uh, Mm. psychologically. But you know, the other thing is sometimes things are more subtle than that. And it may, I mean, if someone comes into me with a with some sort of cancer or something, you know, completely separate from the treatment, I will often sort of say to them, look, you know, let's have a look at your lifestyle and and you probably do drink a bit too much, and, and you're a bit overweight, or don't exercise very much. Let's have a look at that in parallel while we're treating this thing, because I think overall that will make you feel better. So I think there's nothing wrong with that approach, but it's more the the blame approach of, you know, you're, you have a negative uh, outlook on life. If only you had a positive one, you wouldn't have got this cancer. I, I think that can be quite damaging.
1: Absolutely. I, I hear you. And I do think it is quite damaging. It's just, I think there is a there is a belief out there in some parts of the community that certain personalities, I saw a study once on pancreatic cancer and people with a type B personality got pancreatic cancer at a higher rate than those that were meaner. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the poor old mean people. Um, but look, I think the if you... Um, there, there are certainly associations between virtually anything. Uh, if, you, if you look at enough factors, um, people don't fall exactly evenly into groups uh, and particularly with smaller numbers of people you're looking at. But, but I think there, if you look at a certain type of personality, It may also be that that certain type of personality, the people in that group, are also more likely to um, drink a lot of alcohol, for example. And you know, we know alcohol is associated with a number of cancers. So um, I think there can be these flags that that um, that group does, in fact, get more of a particular type of cancer. But if you look as to at the reasons why, it's not because of the personality per se, but it may be because of the um, lifestyle factors associated with that personality.
1: So I guess what you're saying is there's a real difference between association and causation.
0: Well said, May. I mean, that's, that's a, a classic uh, mistake of, of uh, many people. and It's a very hard one to fix in the sense that it's it's far easier to discover an association than it is to discover a causation. An association, all you need to do is, is measure a population, uh, measure lots of things about them and say, well, actually, this sort of cancer is associated with... Living in in a postcode with with uh, you know where the average income is lower or something like that, and that's that is a true association, but that doesn't mean it's a causation, and it's a lot harder to actually go in and alter something uh, and then to show that one A caused B, which which is a, a more expensive, time consuming study, but it gives far more accurate results.
1: I'm just thinking when we think about these energy modalities, could it be that there is an association with someone turning up and holding space for you and being present and you feeling better, like a subjective shift in your experience of your suffering, whatever it comes from. Do you think that could be what's going on and why people are flocking towards these modalities? That's what I'm really trying to understand, why are people going back.
0: Well, I think we're talking about two different things there. So we've moved from talking about um, actually curing a cancer, which I don't think there's any association with whether you turn up to a uh, a, a energy healer or not, um, I think you'd find if you follow those people, the cancer outcomes were precisely the same in both groups, people who did turn up and didn't. But if you're then moving on towards people feeling better, well, that's a very different kettle of fish. So, um, And you can have people feel better after seeing their GP or seeing their psychologist or seeing their energy healer. But the two things are, um, are very different things, I think.
1: Why do you think people are seeing their energy healer or their Reiki practitioner as opposed to just seeing the GP again? Um,
0: look, I think, I mean, people do see both. And, you know, GPs, I think we we see about 83% of the population every year. So we do see most people each year. But um, people see energy practitioners or alternative therapists because they feel they're getting something out of it. And if they, particularly those who keep seeing them, I mean, of course, there's a number who see them once or twice and find it's not for them. So the people who keep going back are clearly getting a a benefit from it, you know, which I certainly wouldn't deny that benefit. I guess uh, my main thing is that I don't think that benefit is because the practitioner has any skills in actually altering anyone's energy. I think the practitioner has skills in perhaps talking to people and listening to people.
1: And you've been witness to energy healing firsthand. What did you see? What's your impression of what was going on? Yeah, so I did a
0: television show with um, Charlie Goldsmith where I was the sort of rolled-in, sceptical uh, doctor and he was the energy healer. And, yeah, I, I've, I thought Charlie was a very pleasant uh, bloke and I had a bit of a chat to him and he's got a nice personality and he's um, he seems like a, a kind person and I think um, people respond to that. Um, yeah, there certainly wasn't anything on that show uh, from start to finish, which made me um, believe that in any way he was actually channeling energy by holding his hands in a certain way and uh, blinking and thinking about things. I just don 't think that was uh, that was altering some supernatural, unmeasurable energy in the person 's body. I think it was the interaction between one human being and
1: another. What would it take for you to believe?
0: It would, uh, for me, to believe in that sort of thing, it would take an extraordinary amount of evidence. There's an old phrase that um, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. So I think if you have something that's very plausible and probably might work, so something like massage, you know, relaxing a muscle or something, everyone can see how it might work. And I think you do, you know, one reasonable study showing that, you know, People who got massaged felt better um, compared to people who didn't. <clears throat> that I think is a reasonable thing. But to to try to prove if you if I said to you that swinging a teapot over someone's head uh, cured their cancer, and I did one study uh, which showed that you know. Uh, one group did better. It would require a lot more than that for me to believe it. I wouldn't start um, recommending teapot swinging just because I think it's so implausible. So in other words, if you do one in every you know, 20 studies, um, is, it occurs by chance. So we try to do studies. So there's only a one in 20 chance of it occurring by chance. And of course that does happen. And if you publicise that one in 20 studies and say it was a positive result, for me that wouldn't be enough for me to suddenly um, think there's a new energy level in the universe.
1: Just just for everyone at home, what do you mean by one in 20 studies happens by chance?
0: Uh, I'd probably phrase that badly. What I mean is that it's cons- one of the um, cutoff points for um, showing whether the two groups differ or not is you try to Um, make the result so that only there's only a one in 20 chance that the two, one group did better than the other just due to random chance. In other words, you happen to, uh, more, more people whose tumour was going to be fixed happened to fall into the first group rather than the second. You can never eliminate chance altogether. The, ho- the largest n- number of studies you do in different circumstances and the larger number of people make it less and less likely that chance will play a part, but it, it can always play a part in these
1: studies. So if we were going to design a study to sort of end this debate once and for all, what problem do you think we could pick plausibly? We probably couldn't pick sort of tumors, like let's say it was a syndrome of pain or fibromyalgia or I'm trying to think of other common things which people bring up. Mm. What condition would you choose? How many people would we need to recruit? And what would we need to do to absolutely test this and bring it to a, a, a bring the conversation to a close?
0: I think by far the most important thing uh, which that study requires, which I would not even bother reading the results if it wasn't there, is something called blinding. And I mean, uh, blinding is a very important concept whenever you're looking for a result based on what the person says, so how the person feels, so things like pain levels, feeling better, moving more, all that sort of thing. The concept of blinding means that neither the, uh, the person in the study or the person writing up the results of the study, doing the statistics on it, neither of them actually knows which of the two groups that person fell into. Um, the reason that's so important is that you can't just study people who turn up to Charlie Goldsmith and ask them at the end of the interview, do you feel better, and compare that to people who didn't turn up to to Charlie and say, do you feel better? Because almost inevitably, uh, no matter what you do in that hour you spend with someone, Nearly everyone says they feel better more after that hour, and that's the same as if you set them up in a room with their their good friend with a cup of tea talking for an hour. So, but that's not a blinded study because a person knows mm-hmm. what has happened to them. So, blinding is almost never done in any of these studies, which people claim show evidence of benefit. And I think that's that's the huge uh, problem with it. Blinding is very very commonly done in large um, scientific studies and all, and, and of things like, does pill A work for this condition? So does Panadol help with headaches or something? It's very easy to do blinding because you just make a placebo Panadol pill and give that to half the people and you figure out the answers before you reveal um, which, which side the person fell into.
1: So if we can blind a whole cohort of people, if I can get several hundred people in a room, What sort of problem would have to be turned around for you to be convinced? Um, Actually,
0: after that TV show, I was approached by, um, I think it was Australian Skeptics, uh, and they had already offered uh, Charlie the chance to do a blinded study a few years ago. And I think he hadn't taken up that offer, but the intention was to offer it to him again, and the, the blinding was going to be that <clears throat> Charlie wouldn't be in the same room as the person because I think he also claims that he can do some of this via Skype or a, a telephone uh, contact. And so you could easily set up a system where um, the Uh, receiver of the treatment didn't know whether Charlie was actually giving them the treatment or not, or whether, so that they're not in the same room as him. And I think for that, um, that would be, you know, really quite an interesting study and it need, um, yeah, I mean, you probably wouldn't actually need hundreds for that sort of study, given I suspect the answer would show no difference. Um, You wouldn't need quite so many, um, if, if, someone insisted that there really was a difference, you could keep adding
1: numbers to it. it could be any type of problem? Uh, It it has, I mean,
0: ideally, you'd have a problem which didn't rely so much on the person filling in a survey um, afterwards. Ideally, you'd have some sort of more objective measure. But if it's 100% Hundred percent blinded, if it's absolutely blinded, and the person genuinely has no idea whether the, whether the healer worked their magic on them or not, then even even a survey, a pain survey, or something would still be um, reasonable. I think it's only when it's when people know what has been done to them that it becomes unreasonable.
1: Well, Justin, thank you very much. You've left us on a note that is, I guess, opened up. As many questions as we've answered, I think, today, and I'm just putting it out there. I think maybe we should try and make this study happen. It'd be a bit of fun for, for those of us who are nerds.
0: I think it'd be fantastic. I, I would be a nerd along with you and help, uh, help set up the study, and I, I think it, it would be a, a fascinating one to do. Um, I, I must say, I, I feel uh, pretty confident that if you did it properly, the results would show no benefit whatsoever. But that's just me.
1: We'll have to wait and see. Thank you again for your time and um, wonderful to chat about energy medicine um, with Dr. Justin Coleman.
0: Thanks, mate.
1: There's no doubt that we live in a time when so much of what ails us goes beyond the physical. It would seem logical that our cures, therefore, must go beyond what the eye can see. On this, both Charlie and Justin touched the concept of placebo. Justin made a case for a properly constructed blinded trial to determine whether energy healing has a reproducible and measurable effect. Both conversations also left me thinking about the personalised medicine movement. The era of big data has made it increasingly possible to evidence person-to-person differences that exist for our individual biology. It would follow that these individual differences must exist for our psychology as well. Whereas the holy grail of medicine and medical science has been understanding population-based effects, my sense is the future must hold something different. Is a clearly defined population-based effect really possible when it comes to ill-defined syndromes of pain, subtle and shifting symptoms, or fuzzy psychological syndromes? Given what ails us, could it be that feeling better by any means is the ultimate barometer of modern therapy? Are we perhaps lacking the tools to truly understand what those receiving energy medicine are experiencing? Is it time for us as a species to reconnect with what we've always had, which is mystics and spiritual healers? Thank you once again for joining us on The Alternative Truth and join me in the rest of the series where we dive into Are contraceptives dangerous to women's health? Self-improvement versus self-harm? Produce of circumstance? What should we really be eating? And is the mainstreaming of porn damaging behaviour? Alternative Truth is recorded in the studios of Podcast One Australia. The Executive producer is Grant Tothill. The producer is Sarah Grinberg. Audio producer, Darcy Thompson. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au.
0: I'm Mark Pesci, and I'm exploring the future of tech with my podcast, The Next Billion Seconds. Listen for free at podcast1australia.com.au, search The Next Billion Seconds podcast,
2: or download the new Podcast One Australia app.
1: Podcast One.